our key focus is just quality, whether that's super modern or contemporary design or form, or it's French colonial. Uh, it's really about investing a lot of time and expertise in delivering really high quality, well thought out products. That involves not just ourselves, but the people we surround ourselves with. It's all about the team. Our motto is it takes a village, but we know what we like to do, and it's, it's delivering really high-quality projects, and that could be any type of design. Welcome to Friends of Build Magazine. I'm your host, Ted Bainbridge. I've been traveling the world and working in publications for 30 years. In 2016, we launched our first issue of Build Magazine, a publication dedicated to high-end home construction, renovation, and the innovative experts that make this possible. This podcast was created to have some fun, and explore those who have taken on the challenge of building luxury homes in demanding locations. From navigating logistics and construction to excavating the earth, we want to learn more about these people and how their projects became cover-worthy. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. So I just got in. I'm a little road worry driving in from uh, Salt Lake, but I'm sitting here with uh, Jamie Farmer of Farmer Payne Architects in Jackson Hole. And it's always a treat to come back to Jackson. Um, time goes so quickly. I was here in June and here it is. It's the Arts Fair, which is a pretty big deal in this town. So thanks for uh, being the guinea pig for the next hour and chatting about your firm. Yeah, my pleasure. I, uh, thanks for the opportunity. No, no, this is this is awesome. So. You grew up in Wyoming, but your partner's from Louisiana, correct? Right. Okay. So how did you guys meet? So I was born here. Um, in born Jackson? raised in Jackson. Yeah. I kind of grew up on the West Bank in Wilson. Okay. Um, so quick history. My dad was a builder, ski patroller. Um, mom sold real estate. So I was kind of surrounded hold by on, that. Hold on. He's a ski patroller and a builder. I thought skiing was first and foremost. It is. Yeah. <laughs> His side gig was being a builder. Right. When the, when the snow melted, um, that was a lot of the, the guys gigs in the ski patrol, you know, they'd spend the time building each other's houses or whatever through the summer. Yeah. Uh, but you know, everything revolved around skiing and that's kind of like the essence of Jackson hole, right? Um, it's known for that resort. Do they but, still take, uh, snowmobiles to the top of the mountain here? Oh yeah. They yep. still do it. Yep. The world championship hill climb. That's what it's called. But the course changed this year because Snow King has expanded so much recently. Okay. Um, but it's still the classic event in the spring. So how do those guys, and for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, you have to Google it because it's ridiculous. It's so steep and they don't always get to the top. Right. So how do they turn around without tumbling all the way down or do they? Sometimes it tumbles all the way down. Oh, it it's, does? It's a, it's a fun spectator sport. Um, I've never done it myself, but I've had some friends that have made it to the top and that have failed. Um, ultimately, you know, if you can bail and, and turn your sled around, that's ideal. But a lot of times the sleds will tumble down the mountain and they have crews up there that try to rescue them and they have a net. Um, it's quite the spectator sport for sure. And do they get totally trashed when they tumble? A lot of times they do. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I've heard about it. I just, I, it just, I'm not a daredevil. So it's, yeah, it's fun to watch. I would recommend it <laughs> at least one, one time in your life for sure. All right. So getting back to your dad's a builder. Right. Yeah. So, um, 
you know, I never really thought I was going to be an architect, but my dad uh, and and my mom both would sort of find these properties and, and my dad would kind of design them and build them. And so we moved throughout the valley, I think 11 or 12 times as I grew up here, um, which was interesting. Um, I'm glad I was able to stay in this area, but um, just watching basically my dad sit at the drafting table um, and then go with his crew and, and build these homes that we would live in and then sell, you know, my mom would sell that. And that's kind of how they made a, a living and were able to stay here outside of their normal jobs. Um, so I was kind of surrounded by the construction industry and design through my mom and my dad. So up. was this back in the 70s? 80s. 80s? 80s and 90s, yeah. When did, so it sounds like kind of a spec home. So you'd live in it for two years so that obviously for tax reasons and then sell it. Well, I don't think my parents were that um, far ahead of the game. It was more just of practical terms and they were adapting to the situation. So, you know, we would find a place and, um, you know, in the West Bank in particular, there was this beautiful property on Fall Creek. And so we built what I thought and my parents thought would be our forever home, but the market grew pretty quickly in the eighties. And so it was lucrative to, to, to flip homes and that wasn't their intention ever, but how could you not when, you know, you saw the value and increasing over the you know, period of so many years or months. So the same kind of thing was going on on like a smaller scale in the eighties. But, um, so we just kind of happened to be moving because these homes increased in value over the course of when my dad would design and build them and we would li live in them for a year up to three or four years and then see an opportunity to, you know, at one point we sold our house and took three months off to go to New Zealand. Um, and travel because my parents were into adventures like that. And so it enabled us to do that and live that life in Jackson, but also kind of travel around the world. So Fall Creek, is that down near the Snake River Sporting Club? Um, no, the Snake River Sporting Club is further down on the Snake River, the Hoback Canyon. Okay. Um, Fall Creek is a little creek that flows through Wilson um, at the base of the pass. And then it eventually does connect with the Snake River. Oh, okay. So I was driving up from Alpine. We saw this place called Fall Creek Road or whatever. We lived on a house in Oregon called Fall Creek Loop, which is the only reason I kind of remember it. And it seemed like it was close to the uh, Snake River Sporting Club. But I do know where now. Now my brain's catching up. I do know where Falk or uh, where Wilson is, and that is. I mean, that pass is treacherous. Yeah, definitely is treacherous. Uh, the winter, it's it can definitely be an issue. Avalanches and heavy snow, um, all routes into Jackson are, can be difficult depending on the time of year. When did the billionaires start coming to town <laughs> or have they always been coming to town? I remember in some of the neighborhoods growing up in the eighties, there was a lot of wealth. I think it was more undiscovered. Okay. You know, it was more of a secret. Um, but there was kind of that boom real estate period in the eighties and kind of in the nineties. Um, but just growing up here and seeing the changes and how everything evolved, it really felt like Jackson became mainstream kind of in the two thousands. And that's where, you know, there was a pretty heavy influx of wealth at that point. Um, so, and then, you know, we went through the financial crisis in 2008 and 2009, which, which changed the, this, this whole spectrum of this Valley for a few years, but, uh, kind of picked up right where we left off, you know, and. 2012, 2013, um, another wave of wealth kind of started to move to Jackson Hole and uh, hasn't really changed since then. 
So when you're talking to these people, because some of them are your clients, what is it that they see in Wyoming? Is it the lack of rat race? Is it, what's the reason this is, as I was telling you before we started, there's a few markets that I see in the country that are, you've got some really good high-end markets, but then you've got some ridiculous, like Aspen's a ridiculous market, Jackson's ridiculous, Palm Beach, the Hamptons. What is it that they see in Jackson that they go, okay, this is, I want to have a home there. Is yeah, it the it's park? It, it, it's everything. There, there's a long list of things. It, it has what most resort communities have, but also obviously like the state of Wyoming yeah. um, no doesn't have tax. a tax, yeah. income tax. And so there's a clear benefit there. Um, and that's just sort of icing on the cake, I feel like, because we have fresh air, we have you know, the wilderness right outside our front door. We have access, you know, a great airport. It's easy to get here. Um, incredible skiing among other activities like fishing, whitewater, you name it. You know, I, I used to joke, um, for every month that you live here, you need a new set of toys because th there's so much to do. Yeah. Uh, and I think that that sort of lifestyle and that like authentic outdoor connection is what people are really after. Um, and, Jackson sort of has it all. Yeah, and, it, and you got great restaurants. There's tons of stuff here. Uh, Jackson really is. It's just you come over that pass and you see the valley and it's just it's a special place, especially when it's snowing and especially when it's nighttime because then the lights seem to twinkle. <laughs> That's true. And um, I, I try to appreciate it every chance I get because you can be jaded, you know, being here and just taking stuff for granted. But like you said, every time I drive over the pass, it still kind of takes my breath away. Or every time I drive to work and I pull around the corner and the Tetons are there, you know, and the sun rising, yeah. um, you, you kind of have to pinch yourself. What about the wildlife? Do you take them for granted or you're just amazed with them as well? That's a good question. I, you know, I'm kind of an avid hunter, um, conservationist and, you know, the, uh, the wildlife is a huge attraction for a lot of the tourism in the summer. Um, I just wish people would stay in their vehicles when I they're with too. the bison. <laughs> I do too. It's, they're not pets. For sure. But they think they are. They think that sometimes the bears and the, and the buffalo are pets. But <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's exciting to see people get excited about seeing wildlife. So I kind of just chalk it up and say, yeah, these people are here and they're experiencing this really cool sort of authentic um, habitat and they're seeing moose, elk, deer, bear, wolves, whatever you, you name it. And it, it's a definitely a, um, allows a lot of the private small business owners to thrive here, you know, because of the tourism. And so I just kind of accept it And ultimately the reason we have through these really nice restaurants and, you know, this amazing sort of art culture here and you name it. I mean, there's, there's people push the limits here. Um, it's because of how popular it's become, like we were talking about in the 2000s. And so, you know, you take it with a grain of salt. Yeah, it's really busy. There's a lot of tourism here. Um, but with it brings culture, music, art, yeah. food, you, you know, all that fun stuff. And that's another aspect of Jackson that makes it what it is. I got a buddy of mine, and, and I know you've got a, an office in Louisiana, which we're going to talk about here in a minute. And his name's Pat Carlos. I don't know if you know Pat, but he is from... Uh, Louisiana, went to LSU. He's a chef. He owns, um, he came here skiing from Louisiana back in the eighties and 
when I was in, in, um, Jackson about three years ago, I go, okay, Pat, where should I go and eat? He goes, you got to go to rendezvous, which is, and unfortunately it's no longer there, but it's just such a fantastic, it was a great experience, great restaurant. Anyway, he owns some restaurants up in Whitefish, uh, Tubelo Grills is main one and Tubelo, obviously Tubelo, Mississippi, that's where he got the name. And he still says that, um, Skiing in Jackson is the best skiing he's done anywhere on the continent. He just, (laughs) he loves it here. And he's been to the Yellowstone club and he goes, that's a ridiculous experience because it's private. So you've got two private ski mountains. He goes, you could go four days and still ski fresh powder because nobody skis it. And he goes, but Jackson, he goes, it's an incredible uh, venue to go skiing. It is. It's the ultimate um, place to kind of test your skills. Like you can kind of pick and choose where you go depending on your skill level. But ultimately, if you want to push the envelope and ski some really extreme terrain, um, we have it at Jackson Hole. And also, the access is amazing. You know, you can access the back country or the side country. Um, and so, that, you know, the ski resort cultivated this ski culture and it's boomed. You know, ever since they built the first tram, I think it was in the 60s. There's a pretty okay. interesting story behind that whole thing. But um, the other interesting aspect, too, is that there's two other ski areas. Like Jackson Hole Mountain Resort is the famous ski area, but Snow Kings, we call it the town hill. And, yeah. you know, if you want to take a powder run on, on your lunch break, you can pop over like 10 blocks. And, dude, it's super steep. Yeah, it's, it's definitely steep. Um, they've added some lifts recently, and they've added some training facilities. And so you can kind of... Um, there's a full spectrum of, of difficulty level at Snow King too, but it's a, it's a great compliment to having the Jackson Hole Mountain Resort. And then there's Targhee, you know, over right. the pass, which is another great ski area, um, great access, and really good snow. You know, they, they get the sort of the front range It's totally different, isn't it? And yeah, it's, they, they, they just get a ton of snow, and it's known for its powder. It's a great ski area too. I was in Whistler last week at a conference. Have you ever been up there? I've never been to Whistler. Okay, got to go. I've got to go. You've heard of it. Absolutely. Okay, okay. It's, uh, it, Jamie, it's incredible. I mean, it's just incredible. And it's huge. I mean, it's massive. Anyway, um, let's talk architecture. How do you find your partner, Scott Payne? Because he's from Louisiana, and I see that you've got Louisiana and Jackson Sun Valley as your three offices. That is not a normal combination. No, it's not. We get comments on that from most of our clients or or people we introduce ourselves to. Um, It's just a stroke of luck. Basically, I moved here after college and got a job at um, CLB Architects. And the Southern kid came out of nowhere, started the same day I did. Um, And so John Carney took us to lunch. And I remember from that moment, I was thinking, this is my competitor. You know, I've got to beat this guy. So over the course of a few months, we were trying to prove ourselves within the company. And ultimately, we started to become really good friends. Uh, he was really outdoorsy, loves to hunt. Um, and so that first year, we started hunting together. Uh, and that just kind of rolled into a pretty cool friendship. Um, and he ultimately slept with his wife after four years here to move back to Louisiana. Okay. Um, and I stayed at CLB for a few years after that. but. He started his own firm when he moved back. I think, you know, we'd gained this sort of skill and knowledge about 
high-end architecture, high quality through CLB Architects. Um, that's kind of what they're known for. So we learned this trade and he was able to take it back to Louisiana and not exploit it, but sort of take advantage of that because okay. there was very little um, competition with that skill set. So he was able to shine in well, Shreveport. So I've been to Shreveport. The architecture is so vastly different than it is in the mountains. How do you take that mindset? I mean, that's a paradigm shift. Total paradigm shift. Um, really, our, our sort of our key focus is just quality, whether that's super modern or contemporary design or form or it's French colonial. Uh, it's really about investing a lot of time and expertise in delivering really high quality, well thought out products. That involves not just ourselves, but the people we surround ourselves with. It's all about the team. Our motto is it takes a village, but we know what we like to do and it's, it's delivering really high quality projects and that could be any type of design. Um, so it's definitely interesting and it, and it keeps us on our toes with respect to the challenges and the climate and, and what we're up against in the South versus what we're up against here, completely opposite. Right. You know, here we're worried about cold temperature and, um, Snow loads, thawing, yep. snow loads, and you know we're in this heavy earthquake zone on the, the fault. So um, the approach to design here is kind of opposite from the south, where we're dealing with like you know unstable soils, which I think Scott calls it gumbo, which is okay. hilarious. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> he's from Louisiana, yeah, yeah, and you know moisture and, and humidity and heat. So it it definitely broadens sort of our understanding of building science which also gives us a competitive edge because we understand solutions to all these different types of problems in our, in our trade. So it's interesting to have the three offices. I was doing a, a podcast with a guy from Vancouver, BC. And Vancouver, it ranges in a 30-mile stretch to, from 30 inches of rain a year to 140 inches in 30 miles. And he was talking about back in the 80s, uh, when they when they had when the city had their guidelines for okay building codes, it was maybe an eighty page book, and he goes now it's two six hundred page binders of all different codes because they've learned so much. Water is a pain in the ass; it messes with everything, and it's the one constant that you guys have to deal with that won't go away because gravity takes hold and water goes wherever it wants to. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in the freeze-thaw cycle, you know, it's what over, you know, eons is what wears down mountains. You know, even granite can't stand up to the freeze-thaw cycle. And so it's challenging, um, but it pushes us to learn more every chance we get and try to keep up with technology and products that are out there and, um, and implement that in what we do. Where'd you go to school? Went to Montana State University. Okay. For undergraduate, and then did you work for Jerry Licati while you were there? I did not get an internship with Jerry. But he's an icon. I appreciate his work for he sure. He's an icon. Yeah. yeah, he's done some really cool work. Definitely inspirational up there on the list of um, role models in architecture for sure. Have you ever heard of a company called Dyson Joinery out of BC? I have. Yeah, Ryan Walters in our office actually went to a timber conference in BC. Oh, he, last week. That oh so. He, you know what? I do know that. And I did. I'm pretty sure I met him. Okay, good. Because I was going to say, hey, if you guys haven't been there, and now, sorry, the, the cog in my brain is starting to uh, fall into place. Sure. Did, was it worthwhile? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the aspects of 
what we're in that we try to stay ahead of, you know, t technology and products change so quickly these yeah. days. Um, we're, we're trying to always at least keep up or exceed, you know, expectations and constantly learning new techniques and t mass timber is a huge part of where I think architecture is going in the future. Um, just because of the sustainability aspect of timber, you know, okay. versus other projects or products. Um, so yeah, we like to, when we see opportunities to learn or, or, you know, go to conferences or whatever, send our staff to, to something that they might be excited about. We, we take advantage of it where we can. So I was talking to a buddy of mine who there's a, um, there's a fairly well-known architecture firm in Scottsdale called Swaback. I don't know if you've ever heard of them, but you should look them up. Um, and Vern Swaback started it and Vern's probably 75 or 80 years old. He doesn't, he doesn't go to the office very often, but he's, he actually, he actually, um, started with Frank Lloyd Wright at Taliesin. Like he studied under him. In Scottsdale and yeah. Taliesin West. Yeah. Taliesin yeah. West. Cool. And so Brian, um, is one of their main guys at Swaback now. And he was at that conference and I've known him for a couple of years. I didn't know he was going to be there. It was the first time I was there and it was like, dude, how you doing? Anyway. So, so he said, Ted, um, when I start looking for timber frames for the, our projects, because, uh, they built the clubhouse at promontory. They built the clubhouse at Bighorn, which is spectacular. They've done work up at the Yellowstone club and, and they're, they're, projects are pretty incredible. And he goes, I can go and research stuff on the internet and it becomes a black hole, a vortex. I'm on there for two hours. A, I'm exhausted. B, I get off and I don't feel like I know anything more than I did before I started. And he goes, but I can come to this concert conference and I meet with a dozen timber frame companies. And now I'm sitting across the table, speed dating, asking questions. And now all of a sudden I've got a relationship and, and they do know Dye, and Dye does work here in Jackson, which is why I was asking you. But he goes, now all of a sudden, it can crystallize for me. The internet can be a black hole. Whereas if I know somebody, I can pick up the phone and say, hey, I've got this project. This is what I'm thinking about doing. And now I can get the answers to what I want. And I know specifically where to go. And I didn't even look at it that way. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. It's definitely, it can be overwhelming, the amount of information that, or misinformation that you might find on the internet. But um, relationships in, in architecture and what we do are so important, you know, depending on whether it's an engineer, part of the design team, whether it's a subcontractor or tradesperson, um, those personal relationships where you can yeah. reach to your phone and dial them up and talk to an expert, talk to someone that you've worked with before. Um, those are pivotal when you're really trying to deliver high quality projects and um, do what we do for sure. Well, and, and I just think from your standpoint that you, you mentioned misinformation now in the crazy world we're living in, this stuff, just because it's on Google doesn't mean it's, it's accurate. doesn't mean it's right. It's there, but it's, we don't know. But if you can actually have a conversation with somebody, now you know, okay, they're either full, full of it or no, that may, I can, like, I understand that whole process. How do you, how did you guys start your firm? So you're both at working for John Carney and he's an iconic architect. I mean, that firm is, is the anchor. So you guys go both go to work there. I can see how you can, uh, penetrate in Jackson cause you were born and raised here and you're in the building industry, 
But how do you go to Sun Valley, which nobody really knows who you are? Yeah, that was a very strategic move on our end. So ultimately, you know, working for, for CLB and John and Eric and Kevin was amazing. I mean, you learned so much working for a really high-end, like polished firm like that. Yeah. Um, that was, it was great meeting Scott. It was a great experience for me. Leaving that firm was one of the hardest decisions of my life. Um, you know, it was a work family that I basically said goodbye to, you know, and John is a mentor. Um, but it, it just is felt like it was my progression. Call. It depends on your goals. I think, okay. um, me, I'm kind of fiercely independent. So kind of wanted to go out and, and explore my own career. You know, I had a lot of connections growing up here. So I, I decided to charge forward on my own. Um, and Scott and I stayed in touch after he moved to Louisiana. And so after about two years of doing my own thing, um, him and I started to flirt with the idea of partnering and creating a, a brand. And so we spent an entire year in 2016 planning this legally, you know, accounting, um, all the software, all the systems that we were going to implement. And so we spent a year just like diving into launching our business in 2017. Um, so we launched Farmer Pain January 1st, 2017, and kind of haven't looked back. Um, Scott has some history in Sun Valley. His, his in-laws have always been out there in the summer. They love it out there. Okay. Um, Scott actually bought a house in 2014 in, in outside of Ketchum. Um, so, you know, as part of our business plan, our goal was to actually start an office in Sun Valley, regardless of whether we had worked there or not. Um, and it was a little ambitious, but, you know, we had things kind of clicking in Jackson and in Louisiana. And his game plan was to move there with his family before his kids started kindergarten in earnest um, in 2018. And so we spent some time over there meeting with all the people in our trade. So real estate agents, interior designers, builders, and just researching Um setting up networks and really setting up relationships. Like it comes back to that whole idea of mm -hmm. having relationships and um, just understanding. So was 2018 the perfect time or the worst time? <laughs> I don't know if it was perfect, but I think the way we went about it was informed by, you know, what we had done in the past, whether that was a mistake or something, a learning experience that we had had. We were able to sort of implement what we had learned in Sun Valley by starting our own firms in, in, you know, independently in Louisiana and Jackson. Well, the only reason I ask is because two years later, the pandemic hits and for maybe two weeks, maybe a month, people were panicked in the building industry. Is this going to be like Oh seven again? And it, and a month later they go, Oh no, it's the exact opposite. And now we don't know what to do. We're running so hard. And I've like promontory down in park city, they had an alarmingly good year in 2021 and 2020 was their best year ever. And 2021 doubled it. And we did a, we did a party, a networking deal down there. And the director of sales said, Hey, we need all the architects, interior designers and builders, anybody that you know, because we don't have enough here in park city to facilitate what our clients want. Yeah, that's, it was such an interesting time because Scott and I had both started working in 2007 and it was kind of in its own sort of economic boom right before the financial crisis. And we had kept our jobs through that recession, that great recession, which was scary. Um, we saw two thirds of our 
coworkers and friends and, and staff get laid off, you know, kind of across the board. And did in, CLB in have to lay off people? Yeah, I think Even a firm I mean, like every, every firm okay. went through a pretty serious, I don't know what you'd call it, a reckoning or something, but it was scary. The phone didn't ring for like a year. And so we just worked really hard. And Isn't that a bizarre experience? I, at, right out of college, I never would have thought that um, something like that was, was in, the, in the books for us. But, you know, it, we just took it with a grain of salt and tried to find opportunities, you know, in that. Um, I was, we were able to stay at CLB at the time. Um, I was able to, you know, find a home here in 2011 in Jackson hole. And so that allowed me to kind of be more permanent. Um, so that was an opportunity that came from a really scary period of time. So I think that experience really helped our sort of vision for our company. And when 2020 happened in the pandemic, we were braced and we were like, okay, here we go again. We're ready. We we know what's about to happen, and the complete opposite happened. You know, there was this influx of people from cities that wanted to live in Jackson Hole and Sun Valley yeah. and Park City and yeah. any sort of resort community with, you know, safe neighborhoods, clean air, um, great culture. And so we saw this no riots, no riots, exactly. No, no, I'm I'm dead serious. Yeah, you know, I live in Oregon half the year, and it was Oregon was they lost their mind. Yeah. And then we have, we were in Scottsdale, the other half, and we didn't have it. We had one riot in Scottsdale and it lasted about two hours and, and the local merchants got out and they had guns and they go, you want to take on this fight? And those rioters, they go, yeah, maybe we'll go take to the next one. We'll go to a different city. <laughs> yeah. I was visiting Seattle at the time. I think the first big riot sort of broke out in downtown Seattle and I love Seattle and I love San Francisco and those cities. And, to see that happening like a few blocks away, I was just like, wow, no wonder people are, are getting out of here. Like no wonder people want to be in places like this. Yeah. Um, so it was just a blessing. I mean, we did not see this coming. We were prepared for another, you know, 2008. Um, and luckily, you know, Scott and I have been through that and, you know, we, we can brace for, for different situations. Yep. Um, so yeah, it goes back to your original question. Was it perfect timing? Almost perfect yeah. Um, timing to, to be in Sun Valley. But ultimately, I think not only was our sort of relationship building key to our success there, but um, we were able to really put a lot of energy into the work we did initially in Sun Valley. And I think people saw that. Um, you know, we spent basically a year designing one home, the first project we got, which was a referral from an interior designer. Um, it was who's, amazing. who's the builder on that house? Um, that was Hall Brown. Okay. And Jennifer Hoy out of Sun Valley, good interior designer. Yep. She had recommended us because we met with her. Meredith and I went over there and had lunch with her. Um, so we were able to put a lot of energy into that project and implement like our system, which is teamwork, collaboration, like high quality. And people saw that and it sort of snowballed into a lot more work there. I think it brought a lot of energy to the whole community and to our competition. I think it kind of raised the level. I, which ultimately I think is good for everybody. How does it, you were 35 or 34 when you started this, this journey, right? How did people react to, you're now dealing with people that are fairly well healed and you're building. I mean, I'm looking at the pictures. I mean, the stuff you build is sick. It's Thank beautiful. You. Thank you. How do they react to a 34 year old as opposed to a John Carney who I've not met, but I know enough about him. 
or Jerry Licati, who's 65. That is something that's a challenge, but also an opportunity. Um, all, you know, as an architect, you continue to develop your skills throughout your entire career. And I would never say like, I'm a phenomenal architect. I'm too young to be a phenomenal architect, but, um, I think the energy that we were able to bring to our projects and to our collaboration helps. Um, and we also surround ourselves with great talent. The people that work for us directly with us directly, our staff are brilliant in all their own right. Um, you know, some of them are built furniture. Some of them are really tech savvy. Some of, you know, my, me personally, I spent my college summers framing and being a laborer on construction That's a hard sites, job. which, yeah, it kept me in school. <laughs> <laughs> Framing's a hard job. Yeah, it was definitely a motivator. I was like, I'm staying in school. <laughs> um, but yeah, we, you know, having this young talent um, and, and sort of tapping into that and, and that energy, I think people get excited about our clients in particular and the people, the builders and the, you know, the trades people we work with. Is it, is it humbling to learn when you're that young? Because when you're on a, you know, a 10,000 square foot house, that's a thousand a foot and you're 35 years old, first of all, you got to be pinching yourself that this is a pretty cool reality that we've landed, but it's also, there's pressure that comes with that. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of pressure. And I think what a lot of people don't see is the amount of work that goes into that and the amount of um, I mean, the amount of times things don't work out. And so, you know, the reason I think we, we are able to be successful is because we know what it's like to not be successful and you just get up, you pull yourself up and you, you go back at it, try again, like never give up. So it helps too. when when that stuff does come together, like a beautiful project with great clients, um, you know, great builders, great engineers. And it really allows you to sort of ground yourself and say like, this is, we've worked really hard for this and we can really appreciate like having these types of projects and, and working with these types of people. Yeah, I, I, uh, I, we've got a client, Peter Raja, Norelco Cabinets in Kelowna, BC, and he was at this conference. And, and he does a lot of work with some of the main players in Hawaii. And he's starting to do more projects in San Francisco, or in California. Anyway, he said he started out, and Peter now has 150 employees. So he's got a wow. big outfit. And he is the, I mean, he is down to earth, salt of the earth. He runs it like a fan, like he, he doesn't just run it from up here. He gets down, he has a meeting with his, his key people every week for two hours, every Monday morning. Okay. What are we trying to accomplish? And it's all about, uh, cheerleading and making sure that all, uh, all boats rise in rising tides. It's not a fear of anything. Anyway, he was telling me a story about how he first started out and he had some lumber package for this track home builder in Wenatchee. And so he, he brought it down from BC because a lot of wood comes out of BC. He brings it down, Jamie, and the, uh, the lumber, they miscut it and it was short by about two feet. So it was worthless. So he goes, and it was a big, I mean, it was a big track home community and he goes, he goes, shoot, I'm short by a couple of feet. So he, um, he goes to Home Depot or one of the, the yards, figures out how to fix it, fixes it, comes back two days later and tells the, uh, the owner, okay, we got to fix this is what we're doing. And it worked like a charm. Everything was perfect. And the owner was like, Peter, I love the way you think. And you didn't get flustered when you had a problem. And so he goes, I've got more communities. And he ended up, that started his career. 
Because oftentimes out of failure comes your greatest successes. And the people, when you fail, when you handle it properly, now they're yours for life because they go, this is a guy I want to be in the trenches with. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's a that's a life lesson you kind of learn through each experience, but um, that's just how it is. I mean, we anticipate problems because what we do is complicated. Um, and so it's not whether a problem will arise, it's when it does, like we're ready to deal with it, you know? Um, and that, which is why we, we work with the teams that we do, the engineers, the designers, you know, our staff internally. Um, it's not easy what we do. And so you, you know, you want to be able to deliver, um, and it's challenging, but, but you take it on and you anticipate it and you, you learn as you go, you know, I know I have a ton to learn still. Um, but Isn't I'm not great. I'm open and willing. Yeah. And I'm excited and passionate about it for sure. I mean, if you knew everything now you're 40 years old and you will be <laughs> next, in two months, right? Right. That would be horrible. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I'm I 59. I can't wait to learn the next thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and I've got a piece of software I'm going to, and, and I got to get the name. There's a, there's a big, big, big time builder in, um, in Palm beach and they use this software and it basically allows, and I asked them and I got a Hedrick brothers is the name of the contractor and they do commercial, they do institutional and high end residential like that. They're putting uh, one of their houses is going to be our cover house this year and it's 13,000 square feet. And I just got pictures of it and it's incredible. Um, but there's, they were showing me that there's some software, Jamie, that they can look, and it's not Revit, it's something else, but they can look and it diagrams all the points behind the walls. So with the, with the pipes, with the, electri- um, um, the electrical cables, and so that you don't have any 90-degree angles, and instead of doing it so that you do it on the fly, their tech, their software or somebody's software, and I'll get you the name because you might use it or not, but on some of the projects you use here, this stuff, when they showed it to me, I went, that's awesome. And I go, do your clients love it? And they go, they geek out on it. They love seeing what's happening in the brains of their homes. Yeah. I think in general, it's a building information model, which, you know, there are a handful of large software companies, Revit's one of them, Archicad's yep. the other. Um, and that's another aspect of technology where you need to try to stay ahead of the curve if you can, um, because it can be incredibly complicated, but those tools can be so useful. Um, and so, yeah, that's, you know, we rely a lot on our younger staff to, to keep us up to date with some of the technology that they are using in school and like rendering software. Um, building information modeling is you kind of like get what you put into it. It can be overly complicated depending on the project, I feel like. Um, but it can be really valuable when you're trying to communicate complicated systems to a builder, you know, or a fabricator or whoever it might be. So how, how has the building industry changed since when you came out of school 15 years ago to today? How much more complicated is it? The, you were working at the granddaddy of firms here in town. I mean, they really are the iconic firm. So you were already exposed to some pretty cool stuff and now you're doing it on your own. How's that, how's the um, technology changed? That's a really good question. Um, There's a lot of things that change in our industry, whether it's technology or codes or requirements. Um, You know, obviously energy and sustainability has become prominent just 
in the fact of where we are, you know, as a, as a society, but also as like the, you know, the world. So anywhere that you can make that more efficient, you know, whether it's like we talked about mass timber, that's more sustainable, like it grows out of the ground versus like a steel product. Um, trying to stay on top of those aspects of what we do, energy consumption, um, embodied energy, you know, we're, we're really trying to like hone in on that stuff because we're at the point, I feel like with our processes and materials where we can really start to do cool stuff with buildings that, that almost produce energy, right. Or they're like super healthy, um, environments to live in. They'll or, produce energy. Sure. Yeah. Like so they're all. not net zero. They're net positive. Certain projects can be. Yes. Really? Yeah. Okay. It's a challenge. Um, it, ha- it takes a specific set of, um, you know, people and clients and, and location to pull that off. But, you know, if you're really pushing the envelope, the, some buildings totally are net positive. Um, and depending on where they are and what climate zone or whatever, it can be more difficult than others. But, but that's the future, right? It's like what Elon's doing. You know, he's pushing the envelope with um, a lot of different things. And, you know, I forget the stats, but buildings use up so much of the energy that we consume. And so to be able to, to kind of change that mentality, um, I think that's where the, our industry is headed in the future as far as those systems. And then, you know, there's technology, which is constantly changing. I mean, we have a new software update every year and the main software right. we use, but um, it's really about understanding what's out there that you can tap into as a resource to make everybody successful. And, you know, it's across the board processes, materials, technology. Um, you know, we still draw, we still sketch. Um, Do you actually hand draw? Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's a, it's a pivotal part in design, like to, to be able to, um, sort of lay your ideas out on the table. Live. Okay. And that's, that's really important to what we do. Okay. Dumb question. Can you draw upside down? Cause I know some architects <laughs> that will sit there with a client and sketch stuff upside down. Some stuff. Yeah. It won't <laughs> <Okay>. be pretty, <laughs> but it'll get the point across, you know? Okay. I've, I've got but, this one guy at Scottsdale, seriously. And he's got books and books and books, Mark Candelaria. And he literally will sit there. Now, obviously he's, he's a good drawer to start with. But he'll sit there upside down, the client, you know, you die, and the client goes, yeah, that's what I like, or no, that's not, no, change that. And he does it just upside down, it comes out perfect. And he keeps them, anyway. That's really cool. Yeah, we try to keep as many sketches as we can, but it's really about using all your resources. You know, like sketching can be useful, modeling and 3D software can be useful, um, you know, all those different types of ways to communicate what you're trying to do. So we try to stay anchored in some of the traditional stuff and where architecture came from. Yep. But, you know, you also have to take advantage of what technology can do for you. Are, are people still doing balsa wood models? <laughs> yes, they are. are. They really? Yeah. There's something about a real physical model that yeah, just is kind of, you know, aesthetically pleasing or it's just authentic. Um, but you can do so much virtual reality uh, you know, animations, renderings, but you can't beat a 3D model or a physical model, you know, whether it's museum board or cardboard or, or you know, foam core. Um, they're still definitely in the workplace and you can see it kind of over Instagram. There's almost like this emergence again of some more traditional architecture styles. And there's 3D printers too, which yep. are really useful for what they do, which is print complicated things really quickly. Um, so... Yeah, I think it's 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 kind of a lesson in using all medium to communicate what you're trying to communicate. I um 
and now this is a bit of a plug for Build Magazine, which it's not intended, but it's going to come across that way. As I'm texting Cerise back and forth today saying, because I got waylaid waiting for a coffee for 25 minutes, which I told you, which was interesting. <laughs> um, and I didn't get the coffee. I got a refund because I just got frustrated. I go, we got to go. It's been 25 minutes. Anyway. So it's like, hey, Cerise, I'm here. I'm in Afton. Here I am. I'm in Alpine. I'll be there. I'll be on time. No problem. And uh, she goes, okay. And she's at the art auction. And she goes and sends me a picture. And Jamie, without, and I could tell you a story that Mike Doty phoned me 10 days ago in Sun Valley and told me. And she goes, there are about seven or eight different magazines out on this table at the art auction. And some guy, and I'm watching him, looks through them all and picks up ours. And it's that tactile, it's the size, it's the tactile, There's and it's the design elements. There are certain things. And I, the more I start talking to people, and Dodie told me a funny story about the same thing. He goes, Ted, your magazine's the one that gets picked up because I have the other ones. I had them at my house. I had a party at my house, and I had all four Sun Valley magazines there, and the only one that got picked up was yours. And he goes, and I know you love to hear it, and I said, Mike, thank you very much. <laughs> and it wasn't meant as a plug, but it was just – I look at the internet and I go, we all use it. It's an incredible tool. But it's almost to the point now where maybe the pendulum, everything went to the internet. Now the pendulum's coming back a little bit more. There are various types of mediums that we all need in order to make decisions and interact. And it depends on where we are. It's like um, my sales team was asking me about Instagram. And I go, I got Instagram on my phone. And so, Jamie, Correct me if I'm wrong. This is what you do. You take your phone out and you go through Instagram and you're doing this and you're looking at the images and you're literally doing this, right? Swiping your thumb. Yeah. Yeah. And I go, how much interaction are you having with that? And then every once in a while you'll see something and it grabs you. But it's, it's, it's information, yes. As opposed to if you've got something beautiful in front of you, it's just like I want to sit down and I, and I spend $100 on a bottle of wine. I'm not going to drink it like a $10 bottle of wine where I'm just going to gulp it down. I'm going to sit. I'm going to chill. I'm going to relax. I'm going to sit there and I'm going to read something. Anyway, it's just it's all about information and having things in balance. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it all has to do with our senses, like stimulate your senses. And when you touch like a really cool fabric or really cool paper in your magazine, like the cover yeah. texture, like you, you can't recreate that online. No. At this point anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it changes, but, but yeah, for me, it's, it's the pendulum concept is exactly, you know, where I think everything went and you can kind of see that shift in, in culture with what happened in the pandemic and um, people actually kind of, sort of anchoring themselves in nature and the outdoors and this authenticity, you know, I think that there's got to be a balance. It's, it's total balance. Like you just said, total balance, respect would be another good word, but that's a different topic. <laughs> um, okay. What's your vision for the, for the firm? Um, you're obviously you know, doing extremely well. Your projects are pretty damn cool. Yeah. I really appreciate it. We put our, you know, our blood, sweat and tears into the work we do because we're passionate about it. We love what we do. Um, and you know, and it impacts a lot of lives depending on what types of projects, you know, we're working on. Um, we have broadened our, our portfolio to some workforce housing that, you know, we're almost finished a couple blocks away from here. Um, we did a really cool partnership with, um, the housing trust and, you know, a private developer to develop 12 workforce units, which we kind of want to push a little bit more into because that's 
that's a problem within our community that we see, you know, across the board, whether it's the service industry, um, being able to house the service industry, like where do workers come from, you know, how, how bad is the traffic getting? So, um, I think collectively as a firm, we see ourselves pushing our, our projects into more diverse directions, like, like solving workforce, not solving the problem altogether, but at least contributing to solving it. Um, more mixed use stuff, um, outside of, you know, high end residential. So, um, we're going to try to put a concerted effort toward, um, sort of outreach to, to projects like that. And now that we have some in our quiver, I think that we're well positioned to do that. Um, not only in Jackson, but also in Ketchum and Sun Valley area. What is the, because workforce problems have been before my time, before your dad's time, before, you know, it's been for a hundred years at different levels, different scales. And I always like looking at, I don't know if you, you heard this, this story, but Toyota, when there's a problem with Toyota, their culture is they, they ask why five times. So they want to peel the onion back to get to what the actual root cause is, not just the symptom or one of the causes, but it's like, okay, so, so our brakes failed. Why'd the brakes fail? Because the brake pads were made of material that was wrong. Okay, why did that happen? Well, this, this. And by the time they get to the fifth, they've actually got the core problem. Workforce has been, I'll use the term buzzword, but it's, that's, it's not supposed to be in a negative connotation, but it happens all over the place and it's happened for decades. So what is the solution to it? Because it's always going to come up. It's always going to be a factor. Um, I, don't, I mean, the solution I think is to, you know, particularly in our community is to, to starts with elected officials, obviously, in policy, but um, to see people caring, I think, is where it starts. Um, it, 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 there's no magic bullet. We're not going to solve it. I think being able to be um, more mobile, workforce, like work from home opportunities, uh, I think that might help contribute. But from our perspective and from what we can do, um, you know, as architects, it's push these projects. Um, you know, put a lot of energy into these relationships with the town, you know, the housing trust with whoever it might be, you know, and I care about this community. I grew up here and it yep. hasn't been a, as big a problem as it is now. Um, and so we're just trying to do as much as we can directly with the skill set that we have. Um, and I'm definitely not a politician. I don't know, you know, what other levers or mechanisms that people pitch that either work or don't work. You know, there's, there's enough opinions out there if you want to read the newspaper. But, um, for us, it's, it's a challenge and, and we want to step up to the plate and at least do our part. It's just such an interesting, it's an interesting question. And I don't know the answer either. I'm just posing it to you because you're involved in one of the projects. But when we were up in Whistler, Whistler's got the same problem with where do we house these young kids that have to uh, deal with the service of looking after all these tours, right? And and driving down to the airport, we took Brian Woodford from Swabak. We took him, and it's a two-hour drive. And as we're going through downtown Vancouver, he goes, it's fascinating looking at the architecture here. And obviously, we all have our own paradigm, how we look at things. Everywhere you go, I got to believe you look at architecture. Everywhere, right? Absolutely. Because that's your core being. Right. Okay. And your wife probably looks curse. at- It's a curse. No, that, that's okay. <laughs> this stuff, it's got to be super- gratifying to walk around or drive around going, yeah, that's my design. That's my design. I mean, that's gotta be cool. It's definitely, um, it moves me, you know, when me and our team 
get to contribute to our community and see that, um, you know, it, it, it definitely keeps us motivated and it's why I'm passionate about what I do. I get to see like my work come to life yeah, and I get to see other people experience it, which is really cool. It's like one of the key motivators to being an architect. Um, but yeah, I mean this, this, from our perspective, the sky's the limit. And like, we, we have an opportunity now to kind of dive into this, um, this part of architecture where we're really are contributing, like we're taking our successes and we're able to contribute to our communities that, you know, we do business in and is, and spread that out as far as we can. I'm just uh, getting back to your, your workforce. So as we're driving through Vancouver, he's looking at the, the architecture and design in Vancouver compared to Seattle or any American city. And he goes, you can tell that this is a Vancouver is the architect's completely different. It's more of a higher density, more of a world-class city. Whereas in America, we've got so much land. I mean, Canada's got a lot, but Vancouver doesn't. And just how they have dealt with it architecturally. And so it's just, I'm a firm believer if you look globally, you can find solutions. It's kind of like when we've got the homeless problem in, in uh, LA, I would always tell people, why wouldn't, why wouldn't the mayor pick up the phone and phone um, Seoul, South Korea, which I had been to a few years ago. And that's 23 million people. It's one of the top five most uh, populated cities in the world. They would have homeless problems too, but they deal with them differently. I'm a big advocate of picking up. I don't have all the answers. Pick up the phone, phone somebody. And this workplace, I think it's a great problem to solve. Yeah, it's, it's a huge challenge, but you know, I feel like we are at least conscious of it and we're headed in the right direction. Yep. Um, in Europe, you, know, you can walk through most of you know, Western or even Eastern Europe and see perfect and great examples of like longevity in really dense neighborhoods, you know, um, talk about, you know, a hundred year home people, people bring that, that's a buzzword. People bring that up a lot of construction in the U S you know, in the sort of mid century later in the seventies and eighties, this stuff was built to last maybe 30 years, you know? Um, so that's a factor too. It's like, you know, you're building, you're investing a lot of time and energy and money in these assets that deteriorate quickly and just look at, any city in Italy and see how long those buildings have been sitting there and how valuable that is, you know, and you think about that as workforce housing. If you, if you're really smart about um, solving this problem and, and you're trying to create longevity and an asset that with, for a community where you house workforce, um, why not make it last at least a hundred years, like shoot for 200 or 500 years. I mean, that's what, that's how they used to build, you know, in, in Europe. Okay. So you just awesome comment. Why do we bulldoze houses after 20 years, fill up the landfills, whereas to your point, you look at Europe, those houses have been around for centuries. Why do we do that? I don't know exactly why, but I think it's a matter of convenience, you know, um, and it's motivated by, I think, financing. Like, you can develop a property, a developer goes in and say, like, I just use Denver as an example, when you fly in and you can see the sprawl, yep. you know, it's easy, it's, it's motivated by... I think by profit versus by understanding um, the value of something that can last longer, you know? And then they just slap them up and they're yeah, not, they slap, they're and not it's, well it's, made. It's, it's, yeah. There's ways to build, I wouldn't say cheap, but more efficient and intelligently. So, you know, you're not, you're not building really high end expensive projects or products, but you're, you're using like design and, and technology to create something that is going to last longer. It doesn't necessarily mean it's going to cost more. But it just, it holds its value, which is huge for, you know, the industry we're in. You know, 
a hundred year building, you know how valuable that is compared to a 30 year building. It's and, and it's, and it's, yeah, it's, it's, I feel like it's our responsibility to pursue that and push it. And, um, we're at this moment in technology where we, we can, we have the technology to do this with, with everything we can do with materials and timber and, um, transportation and everything. So it's, it's really exciting and it's incredibly challenging. So going to technology and you, you touched on this a few minutes ago, but I'm, I'm fascinated and and because I'm building, I think I told you, I'm building a house in Scottsdale right now as we speak. And I'm going to be curious to know how energy efficient it is. But windows, now with the contemporary push, houses are windows. I'm assuming it's the same way here. And <laughs> Yeah, it's as inefficient as it can be because our view is to the north, the Tetons. And okay. so most homes, so they're if cold. they have that view, have, well, they shouldn't be. But ultimately, it's about how much energy they're going to consume. Um, but yeah, most of the diagrams, depending on if you have a view, have all their glass facing north, which is totally counterintuitive to um, like passive solar heating and sustainable design. Okay. Uh, but ultimately, you know, the technology in windows has come so far where a really well-built triple pane window can perform as good as an insulated wall. Can it really? Almost, depending on, you know, Will what, it be what like an R45 or an R60? Um, I think down the road, it potentially could be. Okay. Um, you know, you're looking at like U values of 0.2, 0.1, which in the inverse of that. So you're looking at like an R10. A window could be like an R10 potentially. Okay. I see it pushing the envelope even further than that. But yeah, that's another area where the technology is caught up pretty quickly. You know, 10 years ago, you're looking at a third of that um, as far as efficiency, I think, in a window system. So that's just one aspect of a building where, you know, you could really focus in on that or the wall assemblies and the building science and, and make really smart decisions um, as far as energy consumption and as far as durability and longevity. Are the windows, are most of the ones that you use, are they European? Because they're pretty sexy and sleek. <laughs> or are they North American? Oh, it's kind of across the board. It just depends on every project. It, it really narrows down to what is going to fit this project the best. Um, I wouldn't say we use one over the other. Obviously, there's like lead time issues with um, products that are shipped overseas and there's there's cost implications. But we typically try to explore all avenues when we're at the beginning of a project and yeah. kind of find um, the right fit. Okay, I can't believe we've talked for an hour. Time flies Dude, when you're having this fun. W- <laughs> this was the easiest one I've had in a, not to discount my other podcast, but I just looked down and it's like, dang. Uh, Okay, I have one last question because I ask everybody because I'm such a huge pro-U.S. and, and pro-capitalism, and, and, uh, but I'm also Canadian by birth, so I understand the social – like there's a balance. I truly am pretty middle of the road, and, I, and I'm a big believer that everybody, everybody should have their own say and, and shouldn't be chastised for it. Did you ever, when you were a little kid, 10, 12, 15 years old, did you ever think that this would be your life? Never, never. And I was going to be a pilot. It's a long story, but um, now that I'm in this position, it makes sense. But I never thought I would be here. And what do you learn from some of your clients? Because you get some heavyweights. I think one of the main things we learn is. composure like we want to work with people that are excited about what they do and 
are excited to work with other people that, you know, are trying to achieve a goal. Um, it's really putting all of your energy into what you're excited about or what you want to do and being passionate about it. Um, that's really what, that's the type of client we want to work with. Um, and you know, that's kind of what we push internally in our staff and everybody. Are you amazed at, at, I'm assuming you've got some young clients as well, don't you? Yeah, we have a few clients that are younger than me. That's wild. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Um, there's definitely, I think, a paradigm shift that you know will happen over the next five to ten years. Um, but I think we're in a really exciting position to to continue to do what we do and push the envelope. One of the, one of the things that I I truly appreciate, you know, I get I get back to my uh, my pro America bandwagon is is the fact that if you work hard and have an idea, nobody looks at you and goes, well, you can't do it for this reason. It's up to you. And I love uh, the younger generation just understanding that failure is critical to success. Because if you don't fail, you don't succeed. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's how you learn. Yeah. Um, I, typically, my generalization is that we probably succeed about 10% of the time. Um, but if you're trying hard enough. If you're working hard enough, yeah, <laughs> and you're grinding. So it's just how life works. And if you can kind of take failures as, as lessons and learning opportunities, that's the only way to, you know, push it and, and be successful. I love it. Jamie, thanks for taking an hour. Yeah, absolutely. And, Thank you, uh, Ted. being flexible in time. Um, but uh, that was awesome. And boy, did this thing go fast. Absolutely, yeah. I really appreciate it. I had a good time. Hey, my pleasure. And uh, until next time, I'm Ted Bainbridge. Thanks for listening to Friends of Build Magazine with Jamie Farmer of uh, Farmer Payne in Jackson Hole, Sun Valley, and Louisiana. All right, bye. Thanks so much for listening. If you've enjoyed the show, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us some feedback. We'd love to hear from you. You can find everything discussed in this episode and more in our show notes below. I'm Ted Bainbridge, and you've been listening to Friends of Build Magazine podcast. <laughs>